Welcome back, everybody. Um, so, this afternoon's lecture, our professor is going to continue the theme of the first lecture and will formally combine um, time preference and productivity, which were thought to be exclusive schools and uh, a lot of bitter arguments were fought amongst the adherents of them when they didn't realize that it was the same uh, two different sides of the uh, same gold coin. So over to Professor. <coughs> Thank you, Sandy. <coughs> the previous lecture was in preparation to this big, big synthesis which we have reached in tracing the origin of interest, which is, of course, the theme of our course here. The uh, reference for the various approaches to interest, interest rate, is, I already mentioned, Boom, Bauer, The Fear of Interest, two-volume work, very exhaustive, very serious scholarly approach. Boom, Bauer is was a, a great economist who also had time to be politician, and of course 19th century politics was very different from 20th and 21st century politics. There was much less corruption, much less graft, but Ben Barberk as a politician was way above other politicians, even though there was less corruption around. He was a stellar uh, politician with strong principles and uh, clear ideas. So in every way, a very attractive person. <laughs> now, in uh, surveying the various theories of interest, he named seven or eight. And I think we don't have to go to that detail, but if you're interested, you could consult his book, two-volume work on interest. I think it's sufficient for us, for our purposes, to confine our attention to the two major theories which the Austrian school recognized and tried to reconcile the differences between the two. And this was not successful. So the bitter fight because it certainly went way beyond what you would call a debate. There's a 
literal fight between these two schools continued within the Austrian economics. Very unfortunate. I call it fratricidal war. Okay? And in fact, that's the title I gave to my talk this afternoon. The fratricidal war between the time patterns and productivity theories of interest. <clears throat> so I consider this very unfortunate within the Austrian school there could be such a waste of energy time and even blood <laughs> because they could not so, I mean, I just mentioned one episode. Mises was, of course, a very restrained man. He never went to the extremes and used uh, extreme language. But when somebody started talk before him about the productivity theory, he lost his temper. And this shows that here is a reserved gentleman who is very dainty, very selective with his. And then just mention something which is antagonistic to his views, which in this case is time preference theory of interest, then he would lose his temper, release his invectives against those who <coughs> said, had a good word to say about the and Mises was also very adamant that in the formation of interest, excuse me, there is no market process such as time formation, formation of wages, this thing. Interest is the it's like imposed on human mortals by an outside force, by a kind of deity, a kind of God. And we are acting under the influence of this transcendental power, as it were. Very different from price formation, when there are people, the consumers, there are producers or suppliers, and then it's really ultimately our wish 
is how much, you know, there is a kind of competition on the consumer side, there's a competition on the producer side, and whether you take the equilibrium model or this equilibrium model, which is much more complicated, we admit, but also much more powerful, doesn't matter which you consider as your guiding star, which model, but ultimately it's the people whose give and take, whose trade will produce the price. Mises says that this is just entirely different. This is a market process in formation of prices and formation of wages would be similar. But when it comes to interest, it's entirely different because there is an imposed on us. There is an imposed time preference and this gives rise to what we call the originary interest. We, we have no use in our context for that word originary interest. Uh, I think Mises created that combination originary, inter originary interest. This combination of words suggests that the, that interest is or originates from outside of us or outside of society because there's such a thing as time preference it's universal and uh, and then the market of interest comes about uh, starting with the originary interest. This is the abstract thing which Mises uh, introduced, but I could not tie it. I myself at a loss. I just don't see how this originary interest, it's like borrowing it from nowhere. But anyhow, take the originary inter interest and then introduce such things as risk, premium, or as if there is any seasonality involved, or anything else, which minor variation, but basically it's the originary interest, and that's how he explains what is not a market It's imposed from above. And of course the productivity theorists come back and say this is nonsense, it's very obvious, isn't it, that if the interest rate rises, goes to a higher level, then a lot of uh, producers become sub-marginal. A lot of enterprises have to go out of business simply because they cannot compete against the higher. So regardless whether it's imposed or market form, the, the, we just have to recognize, we just have to recognize 
the fact that there is a market process because there are consequences. A change in the rate of interest will create changes in the economy, such as closing businesses or opening new businesses, and so on and so forth. So uh, the debate was going on, raging, no agreement inside. And if you look back what we did during the previous hour, you, I hope you will agree with me that the solution to the controversy is really very simple because we find a synthesis. There is room for time preference and there is room for uh, productivity considerations. And to break out of that vicious circle within which the debate has been going on before is Manger. Why? Because before Manger, there was a monolithic price. Demand curve, supply curve, intersection, monolithic price. Under the uh, equilibrium <coughs> theory of demand and supply. Monolithic price. Comes Menger, tremendous revolution, throws out the concept of monolithic price, introduces the ask price and the bid price, and recognizing the fact that different forces have an interplay to determine what the ask price will be and an entirely different uh, set of forces and circumstances will determine what the bid price is. But there are these two, the ask price and the bid price, and the spread between the two. Incidentally, I didn't have time to go into details, but when you take the spread between the asked price and the bid price, there is always an arbitrage, a separate type of arbitrage, and we call it the bid-ask arbitrage because there's money to be made if, whenever this spread is wide enough or too wide. There's money to be made. And the specialist who makes a living by exploiting the wide spread between the asked price and bid price is what we call market maker. I come back to this, but I probably many of you heard about the specialist in, in the uh, New York Stock Exchange. 
the, uh, the specialist, this doesn't suggest arbitrage, but that's exactly what the guy is doing. There is a big stock, say IBM, okay? Then there will be a specialist who makes a market in the IBM stock on the New York Stock Exchange because he is ready to buy at the uh, is my, buy the bid the bid which is cheaper everybody else has to pay the higher ask price but the specialist has an advantage he can buy lower he can buy at the bid price and then he sells at the aspect. <coughs> so you see, if you buy the stock and turn around and sell it, you are going to make a loss, right? Because you bought, you bought at the ask price and turned around within a second, try to sell. The best you can hope is uh, selling at the, at the uh, bid price, you see? But if you are a market maker, if you are the specialist, then you are in a privileged position because you can buy at the bid and sell at the higher ask price. And the spread for you is positive, you make a profit at every transaction. So uh, this is why we call this fellow market maker because his presence makes transactions smooth. If, they, if you didn't have a market maker, you would just have to go around and, if you wanted to buy and ask everybody at what price you are selling and then go back and say, okay, this fellow was the cheapest and try to make transaction, but he will say, sorry, I, in the meantime, something happened and I have to change my ask price, you see? Not, not a very good market situation. But if there is a specialist, he posts his ask price and bid price. And of course, if there uh, is coming in a special supply or special demand, he will make adjustment. So he has to have intelligence backing up his activity. But the important thing is, that the market maker has a special service to the market. It makes it possible to do the exchange more efficiently. And that is his role. And as a result of his activities, somebody should finish my sentence. As a result of the activities of the market maker, that's right. That's right. So uh, it started all out because of the widespread, and this is not a natural state because if the spread is wide, it invites the uh, specialist, the market maker, to come and make the market. Without him, it's not, 
it's more like a jungle than a market. But once the market maker appears, he starts his business and as a result, visible result, the spread gets lower and lower. Now, don't think that this will go to zero, because it will obviously, uh, at one point, the uh, spread is as narrow as the circumstances allow. allow. And this could be influenced by various outside forces, such as efficiency of communication. Now, you know that in the early 20th century, there was no telephone, there was no television, there was no internet, but there was still uh, the uh, telegraph. And there was the ticker tape, okay? So, this uh, made communication possible very primitive in our view, but communication nevertheless, and much better than before, because imagine before electricity was widely used, uh, it's, uh, you know, the news about new price spread very fast. Perhaps you are all familiar with the story of uh, the Rothschild banking house in London and uh, when the Battle of Waterloo was fought between uh, Napoleon Bonaparte on the one hand and the allied powers involving the, the uh, English, the, the Germans, and many others. Waterloo is a place in Belgium. It's, there is a museum there. So, so this very crucial battle was fought on the field of Waterloo. And you know, the future of Europe or the world depended on the outcome. Because it's one thing for Napoleon Bonaparte to come back and reclaim his empire. Remember, he was exiled to the island of Elba in the Mediterranean. And they told him, the, the victors, that was another battle, I don't know if it has a name. But anyhow, Napoleon lost, he was exiled deprived as the emperor of France, uh, exiled to the island of Alba, and they said, okay, you, have, you can have your armies and uh, uh, cavalry and artillery, and you can do all the shooting, but you stay on this island. So he accepted the offer, but after a time he said, no, I was born to be the emperor or even the master of the world, so he said, I go back. Unless he went back, uh, troops loyal to him, because he could command tremendous loyalty on the part of his soldiers. It's really remarkable. 
you know, she's a great story. But anyhow, to make the long story short, what happened was that, uh, of course, the Allied powers didn't agree to the return. On the contrary, they wanted to stop him. And uh, they regrouped their forces, and where they met, Napoleon on the field was water. So the Rothschild Bank House in London realized how important it was to have the result of the clash as quickly as possible in London and then you could take advantage of your knowledge. So uh, my point is that the communications were so primitive that the Rothschild Bank House had to spend uh, a large amount of money to organize this Pony Express, let's call it, but it meant that several uh, riders with or maybe just the one rider with uh, horses changed. Was it pigeons? Hmm? It was the homing pigeons, wasn't it? Pigeons. Uh, is, that, uh, is, is that reliable when it's such an important mm -hmm. issue? They sent 10 of them. Well, anyhow, I'm just saying what happened, okay? <laughs> Perhaps you go back and read the history with pigeons. But, I mean, that was a reliable way, but expensive way of communication. So he had the head of the Rothschild Bank House, had his uh, messengers, and when it was a decisive victory and the allied part, the messenger started to his journey horses changed on the way. He's always ride, riding a horse which was at the top of his condition. So as a result, he learned before anybody the outcome. See, this was a rather close call. Nobody was sure, so you could take bets, and there was, I'm sure, but you could, uh, but nobody was certain. It was just so iffy, so uh, uncertain the outcome. Well, anyhow, the messenger arrived in London, and using this advanced knowledge, because you could be sure that it would take several hours, if not half a day, for a full day before everybody else knows about this. The bank house started buying certain stocks and selling certain other stocks. Well, I don't know which stocks <laughs> they bought and which stocks they sold, so it was an arbitrage. Piece. But with the advance, with the early knowledge of the outcome of Waterloo, and that was, of course, a scoop, as they say, or, or, or some other words. Anyhow, this is a 
story which I mentioned just to show you that as communication increases, the bid-ask spread will change so that the market maker has to make sure that he has the the uh, the most advanced communication system, state-of-art, state-of-art communication.